pump shit. Don't you care anymore what you say, cause it's my life. Do 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 do. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. And don't forget that you're a victim of circumstance. I never meant to be the victim of your romance. I still go on. Don't get me wrong. But you can speak your mind, but not on my time. I don't care anymore what you say, cause it's my life. Da -do 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 -do. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. William Joel, Sir William Joel, I believe he's been knighted. One of the best to ever do it, and by it I mean write uh, incredibly cheesy and insanely hostile and uh, um, narcissistic songs uh, that weirdly over-rely on cheesy uh, sound effects. Uh, William Joel, Billy Joel is about the only contemporary like, uh, songwriter of any note popular in popular culture to, you know, before hip-hop, I guess, to consistently put little sound effects in his songs, like little making literal the fucking content of the song, like uh, moving out with the room room at the end, or there's one where the TV starts. Like, dude, come on, man, people. It's a song. People know what's happening. It's so funny because you'd think it would make his work specifically and exclusively, or I mean uh, specifically suitable to the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the... God damn it. Uh, to the jukebox musical. That's what I was thinking. And there was a Billy Joel jukebox musical called Moving Out. Uh, Twyla Tharp did the choreography. And I believe it was a one season flop, which is, like I said, amazing because his songs are very, uh, many of them are stories. Uh, he loves people like them with that kind of, you know, uh, theater. Uh, uh, a theater style elements, theatrical elements. I kind of wonder, I mean, I never saw it, obviously, but I kind of wonder if it flopped in part because any protagonist, like imagine the main character in a play where he's got to sing Billy Joel songs like every 10 minutes. Imagine what an absolute fucking douchebag that character would be. Every song by Billy Joel is somebody saying, fuck you, I'm cool, you suck, or trying to exculpate himself or demand something of someone else. Don't go changing to try to save me. Oh, if that's what you call moving on, well, I'm moving on. Hey, good luck in the suburbs. Uh, here I am at the piano, and they're asking me, man, what are you doing here? It's like, god damn, this guy's a fucking smug, hostile prick. And I'm assuming the characters, uh, the main character in the show was as well. I don't know. Probably never going to see it, but whatever. Some of the songs are still pretty goddamn catchy. Okay. Have I talked to you guys about the white noise thing yet? Because I really think this is really interesting. So if you guys know anything about the movie biz right now, one of the hottest uh, power couples in, in creative end of Hollywood is Noah Baumbach, uh, 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 Felix's least favorite director. 
uh, and uh, uh, Greta Gerwig, his uh, younger female uh, paramour. Uh, it's funny. Noah Baumbach is is like the dark Alexander Payne for Felix because Felix loves Alexander Payne and he hates Baumbach. And I honestly think part of the reason comes down to the fact that Baumbach is actually Jewish and uh, Alexander Payne is a Midwestern Greek guy, which means he's basically Jewish in that his relationship to like uh, uh, mid-American milieu is like similarly alienated, but it's not quite the same thing, which means for, you know, someone who's immersed in Jewishness their whole life, less maybe annoying. Uh, so anyway, he hates Baumbach, but so Baumbach has been making these Netflix movies for a while now. He's, he's, he's on the creative end of the lost leader ledger for Netflix. We've got Baumbach, the guy who made, you know, movies like, uh, like Margo at the wedding and the squid and the whale middle brow, middle brow classics at the very tail end of, uh, independent theater as a concept. And in those early days, he was married to uh, you know, celebrated and talented actress Jennifer Jason uh, Lee. Uh, but they had an affair, I believe in part because he cheated on her with Greta Gerwig. If not, he cheated on her with somebody for sure. Uh, and then he ended up making a movie about it, Marriage Story, uh, and hooking up with Greta Gerwig. And together they've collaborated on a couple of movies. And She's like his younger protege. Uh, and also... Uh, wife, I guess, or girlfriend, I don't know. But so they both uh, indie people, you know, who came out of those those moderate budgeted movies that uh, existed on the margins of the big big uh, studios and were meant to, you know, gobble up, make enough money for investors, but were not supposed to be huge uh, ledger items. But of course, that whole economy has been swamped by quantitative easing more than anything. I mean, we talked about it at the end of last week about how uh, the, the, the final t uh, t uh, time fix to the crisis of capitalism now is in quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve. And what that means is now there's so much money circulating that profits have to be massive to justify investments. And because investments are massive, because there's nowhere else to put it. So it's just malandering through the system. So these guys all get squashed out. But so he got to enjoy sort of the apogee of that. Like I said, Squid and the Whale, Margaret with the... At the wedding, these movies played in theaters. I went and saw them in theaters. Uh, they were talked about by uh, Cognizancy and Literati. Greta Gerwig, younger, of course, comes in a little later. She gets a few of those before she ends up getting swallowed by the same economy he does. And so I honestly, I think because gender plays a role, but also the generational thing, Baumbach had longer to establish his name as like a brand. They are now both at the two ends of the stick of, like, uh, the creative in Hollywood now, the, the, the filmmaker, at least. Uh, film runner, show runner, whatever. Or, uh, so if you're a filmmaker with any kind of clout in the industry, your choices are you can make shit on Netflix that will never get seen by or talked about, talk, seen by anyone or talked about by anyone. Some people will watch it while they're on their phones, or folding laundry. They might tweet about it a little bit. It might get a little bit of meme rubbish, but that conversational, the thing you went into it for, basically, to be someone that people talk about, you know, one of the things that, that fuels the egos of filmmakers, that's gone. But they'll give you creative freedom because they're just signing checks. They're just an algorithm that's making decisions. You don't have studio executives and people thinking that they actually have a role. And, of course, creatives hate those people, but we know now from the Netflix example that, some pushback requires filmmakers to 
get more ingenious and to like look at their film and address it critically in a way that they wouldn't otherwise and makes in general for a better movie not always when you got fucking Harvey Weinstein chopping up movies left and right uh, but just something some friction is good when we, we see instead is now Baumbach is over there like fucking Colonel Kurtz having spent $140 million on an adaptation of White Noise which is a movie that takes place entirely uh, in and around a fucking college campus in the Midwest So that is where you end up. You end up in the creative weeds, trying to hack something out of just this big blob of money on a streaming service. Or if you're a little late to the game and maybe a woman, uh, you are, if you're Greta Gerwig, uh, you get to make a smart, thoughtful, uh, you know, subversive, actually, version of Barbie. You get to do IP for a studio. Those are your two options. That's, that's where you get to go. There's no other place. Like the best case scenario now is not that you get to make a movie and then you have people see it and have every step of that process part of a careful, deliberative uh, winnowing into, you know, the highest, the highest amount of clarity of purpose and meaning. Instead, it's people just drowning in a sea of money. Or it's you being creatively strangled by the IP shackles that are required to get anything else made for any significant uh, outside of the streaming economy. And of course, the Baumbach deal is running out. He's probably going to be one of the last guys to get that deal. The barn, they're closing, they're pissed, they're calling in the fucking dogs for this shit. Uh, um, because they're finally cranking down on the money supply. They're finally applying some fucking... Uh, they're applying some uh, friction to the market. They're, they're tapping the brakes a little bit. And so the first things that are going to get stress tested are these things where there's not even any theoretical money, where it's just a build the technology uh, and capacity play, where, where profit is out the window, which is only possible because of quantitative easing and applies to things like Netflix and fucking um, Netflix more than anything. But also, like, Lyft and stuff, those guys are in trouble. Tesla, they had to sell their Bitcoin at a loss to show uh, positive cash flow for the quarter, which is a big eyebrow raiser. Uh, but the most vulnerable of all is Netflix because it doesn't really have anything. All that's, it's, it's value add now, hey, we're going to create this, like, streaming capacity, has now been absorbed by people who have IP, like Disney or Warner's. Uh, tech like uh, Amazon or uh, a just ma a, basically a domination of the personal computing space in such a way that their profit flows elsewhere are such that they could throw money down that hole forever because uh, I don't know how many people know this but for the last decade or so uh, uh, Apple has just been sitting on a trillion of trillions of dollars that they can't settle anywhere because there's nowhere that it'll be worth it to put in an investment versus what they're going to cost in taxes. And so they're just looking for places to write off money. And Apple Plus is part of that. And so they're going to be able to hang around forever. But Netflix has nothing. They frantically spent zillions of dollars to build a catalog. But they're just so far behind the eight ball compared to the other IP holders 
that they were never going to do it. But part of the strategy was get quality names and give them all the money they want, which is just like letting kids eat fucking sugar for every meal. Their teeth rot out. There's a couple of people who use the maximalist format and the indulgence well. Like, there's a reason Scorsese is one of the greatest. Obviously. And it is that they can be like, oh, these insane idiots will give me all the money I want. All right, I'm going to use it to... uh, to utilize special effects technology in such a way to intentionally alienate the, myself from the audience of this picture, to make them be pulled out of space and time, to be intentionally alienated in a Brechtian sense from what is being watched. And that is astounding, is that you have a what $160 million exercise in Brechtian alienation. That's what the Irishman was. That's because Scorsese is the king. Uh, he's very, very talented. He's a genius, even in his late... Uh, he's almost 80 years old. Uh, now, a lot of people say Scorsese, he's a middle-brow choice for best uh, picture, or best director. And that's when I say, hey, idiot. well, first of all, he's in the conversation for me, but the reason he's in for com- the conversation for me is, hey, idiot, film is a middle-brow genre. The more capital it takes to make a piece of art, the less art is in it. You could put it on a fucking chalkboard, And the anomaly of Netflix throwing money around where it doesn't have to relate to profits is what allows him to go in there and go, yeah, I'm going to poke the audience in the eye for three hours and basically do an old man look back at his life's work only for like it's Frank Sheehan looking back at his life's work of being in the mafia. And it's Scorsese looking back at his life's work of chronicling the mafia. And really what I think that movie is about is Scorsese, who grew up around gangsters in Little Italy, but who is a fucking nerd with asthma who had to stay home, is he looks through the mirror darkly at, 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 at Sheeran and all of his protagonists, all of his criminal, uh, bad guys, his criminal antiheroes. And he, and he says, like, and he points out, like, their end is this, uh, this misery. It is this end state of total alienation from everyone uh, and I don't have to worry about that I am not suffering that because I get to do art because I get to tell stories about them instead of do that stuff I mean you know I'm benefiting from the same capitalist machinery that they're all part of because organized crime is a funk is like a load-bearing member of the capitalist uh, political economy. It cannot not exist. In fact, it must exist and it must be directed towards capitalism's ends, which is very easy because organized crime accumulates people who care about money. And therefore, they can be socially organized along a class interest that is basically uh, orthogonal to, you know, uh, the legal classes. And they'll do what you need to do. They'll do the stuff that can't be done in a democracy. And that's a big part of the Irishman is, is the relationship with the Teamsters and the way that they warped the labor movement and maybe killed Kennedy. We are live. Why are people saying we're not live? I'm talking. Why do you think? Uh, all right. I will. Let me go to Twitter.com and tweet. 
I'm going to do it right now. You're going to hear, hear I'm live, dummies. Are you, even if you're gaslighting me, I don't care. All right. So that's the kind of gold you occasionally get from this model. But what you're mostly going to get is people who are at the end of their creative uh, rope, probably, who aren't getting challenged anymore uh, and now are just being indulged to their extremity. And they're going to be able to, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be better than, you know, the gray man or whatever the fuck. But it will it will not be a movie, which is what they used to make, you know. The, cha- the, 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 uh, the challenge won't be there, so the effort won't rise to it. And that's why streaming is just a new and lower form of art. The problem with talking that way is that people get defensive because they think, they think that if you say that a form of art is like less... Uh, meaningful than another one like you know in terms of conveying the human spirit all that stuff you want all the abstraction all the abstract pleasures of art that are like the the apollonian elements of art that are that are rested right on top of our dionysian desire for uh just distraction and indulgence which make up you know that's why we look at art also because it feels good but it doesn't just feel good it also connects those feelings the good feelings to something that is eternally good. I'd say that's what art is. It doesn't mean that you're bad for uh, consuming it. It's what's on offer, and we all need something, even if it's gruel. The problem comes when we decide that, no, the gruel is all there is, and that actually uh, all that other stuff is worse or inferior, or at least the same thing, and I don't need to engage with it at all. There was a, a fucking tweet from like a, a British newspaper or something that said, uh, you know, people say that there's a less literate culture, but that doesn't uh, acknowledge all the words that people consume in the television and films they watch. It's like, yes, because that's not fucking literacy. That's not reading, for Christ's sake. So that's why you can be, that's why I try to indulge the middle position as I do in everything where I am, I just sort of try to suspend myself eternally, dialectically between the Adorno critique of popular mass culture, which I think is, is a correct sketch of like social function. And the fact that that's what I got, you know, not on a mountaintop. I'm in a house. I have time to spend. What do I want to spend it on? But I acknowledge it as that. What I don't do and what I, I, I try not to do anyway is try to infuse that consumption with uh, political meaning. That is the most important thing. Because I, I earnestly believe that the, the, cult, the, the cultural turn uh, is really just a response to the, the death of politics. It's not the result of people making a choice to betray the revolution, sell out. It is that the grounds that they lived on, that fought on, had shifted underneath them, and they had to adjust themselves to this new reality, in which 
the, the, the uh, halls of power were closed. The, the real political action had been foreclosed. The CIA had gotten up to its business, assassinating everybody it needed to. But that's really just uh, a mop-up operation. The real war is fought in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, and, and But by the time, you know, uh, we come up, uh, we've seen the ground laid by, you know, this machinery of death that just this clipped our democracy such that it existed into this form. But, you know, that's because the, the, uh, the social engines that built class power from the ground up were sabotaged, bro- were broken up, were blown up, tapped Hartley, dropped into the machine, boom. You, you've lost your fucking, uh, you've lost one of your uh, uh, fan belts. There you go. Red scare, boom. There go, there go all the carburetors or whatever the fuck. I don't know anything about cars. But it takes a while for the machine to, you know, it's still coasting on its own momentum. And, and we were there for a while, but it was since the 70s we've known, even if we can't see it, say it, that there's no more horizon for political action. And so where else to go with culture? Hoping that maybe we can push the culture collectively through our willing it in a direction that might get people to act differently, to reclaim their political uh, uh, destinies. That's, of course, what we're all going to want to think. Because what's the alternative? What's the real alternative? Smashing yourself to a piece is against the state. Defining yourself against the order until it destroys you. But we saw the people who tried to do that, and that ended up just being its own form of indulgence, as much as people going uh, corporate or whatever the fuck, or making the cultural turn. And deciding to go to the academy and tell everybody about, you know, the semiotics of uh, elf in order to get them to become Marxists. My head is tic-tac shaped. I think that's true. It's pretty much a square. They called they called Scandos square heads for anybody who's seen Deadwood. Because they have this head shape. Minion, maybe. Maybe a minion also. But we're at this point now where people can no longer hope that that their consumption of politics uh, can stand in for action because action is becoming imperative. Like people feel a sense that, oh, there's this thing coming towards me. There's this train coming towards me. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And there's no guide because we've we burned the map. And so there's a, a huge uh, uh, incentive built into uh, our uh, social rituals, the ones that technology has bent us around, to seek to escape the question of of action uh, by uh, creating pseudo-action and, and consuming art is part of that. And again, uh, I'd say that basically 100% of the of what passes for political uh, uh, conflict online, like what those what people are talking about, like at the at the very sharp end, like not even Democrats or Republicans, but like 
you know, the, the, the left and the right as, as groups is people shouting into a mirror and that they are both beholden to their paralysis, both addicted to their uh, participation in the orgon cycle of online politics, uh, both made sick by that because they feel the anxiety deepen and can't do anything about it. They feel the misery deepen, the alienation deepen and can't do anything about it and loathe their own inaction, but they cannot confront it. So they have to recognize it in a mirror, in a mirrored, twisted image where their participation in it is laundered, basically. Like you get to look if you're a uh, a lib, you get to look at you're if you're a socialist, you get to look at, at, at the at the right, the groipers as these death obsessed uh, uh, psychopaths, basically who who want to see the world burn. Well, by their actions, by our by your actions and their actions are basically the same. Your actual things you do in your life, the stuff you do, the stuff they do, it's the same thing. And if that's bringing about the end of the world. Well, then you're doing it too. You just are thinking differently about it. And it's the thinking differently about it that makes them bad and you good. But that is superfluous. You have to pick a side for the thing to work. You have to get on one side or the other of the seesaw for the thing to go. Or like you're, you're the two hands on, the, on, the, uh, on the, the pump car. You know, in the old cartoons... Pump car going down the railroad track, you need two hands for that. Some of them can use one, but a lot of them have two. Because, like, that is, that is the thing that all of this is meant to uh, overlook is we feel... This anxiety, which manifests as loathing of the self, but also loathing of others, loathing of who we feel is responsible for the moment, who we feel is responsible for why we're here. Now, remember, we feel some responsibility of ourselves. And I would argue that for the most part, that is a neurosis. If you're not amongst the actual like architecture of power, if you don't have capital that you are actively managing, uh, I think you can't even be said to really be responsible in anything other in any way that is real. Like your day to day actions are the same as in their intent and interaction with others as most other people in the in the dispossessed class are. But we feel responsible because we're putative political subjects in a putative democracy, and it's our commitment to that belief of the. Uh, that belief in ourselves as that that makes us feel this degree of guilt and it's the guilt that has to be turned into hatred of others and punishment someone has to be responsible now if we could look at it as a system and eliminate uh, the judgment, the need to judge ourselves or others for their participation then we can notice, oh the people responsible for this I don't, I've never seen one of them in my life Probably you haven't. The people I interact with on a day-to-day basis, regardless of their political opinions, are in the same boat as me.
And then you can say, okay, well, what do we have to do to survive this coming, this thing that's coming towards us, this train on these tracks that we're locked to? What do we do? And we have two choices. We can get on, try to get on the pump, pump train, or we can find someone to put in front of us. Now, here's the difference between those two actions. The pump thing, that's not a political choice in the way that we think of it. It's not voting for somebody. It is actually doing something on a daily basis, cumulatively with other people towards a goal, pumping it out there. Because that is all you can do to engage with a capitalism that has been fully abstracted to servers, to algorithms that are inaccessible spatially and conceptually to the average person that you might think you represent. Somebody says, do I do any rituals? This is basically my ritual right here. Uh, the biggest one I do anyway. But if the question isn't, what are we? What am I going to do together to avoid this from happening? If instead it's, well, it's not going to not happen. It has to happen because I'm addicted to the things that it gives me. And I can't move because I'm scared to be in a situation that's less pleasurable in the moment than the one I'm in now because I can only imagine things getting worse but there still is politics, well, then I can vote for somebody to get put in front of me so that I can watch them get hit by the fucking train before it hits me. So that I can get some joy out of living, some joy out of being a political subject, participating in seeing somebody who is fault this is to take the fucking, the cow in the face before we get it. And I would say that those, that that desire is what stitches together the entire corpus of uh, the uh, American political body. Now, you could say on the left, that's not fair. What about people who want socialism? Yes, socialism would be uh, would be a way out of that. But socialism cannot be built politically right now. What can be built politically right now is machines of retribution. At the national level, I'm saying, at the local level, uh, local politics could be an expression of that pump action I was talking about. But at the national level, it can only be a, a weapon of what is perceived as defense against the other and then, uh, and then retribution. Now, the problem here, and the reason that so many uh, liberals are terrified, even though they can't move, just like the rest of us, is that this is wildly asymmetrical. Uh, these are wildly asymmetrical uh, political alliances. Like, when we talk about people who are sick of the system, who would, would go against it, who would break its rituals, who would willingly go into a defiant relationship to all that is, there's plenty of people like that. Now, there are a lot more people who have been beaten into acquiescence or terrified into it. But there are a bunch of people who are just sick of this shit. But they can only be meaningfully politically aligned by the right through the mechanisms of spectacular politics that we're all fi fixed within. Because on the right, you have a vastly larger group of people who are willing to conceive of conflict why? 
because they would not be going against the state. They imagined that they would be claiming the mandate of the state. Police, high-ranking military officers, suburban dipshits who wear camo and, th- and like hang out with cops and police officers. They have private firearms. Now, within the, this bipartisan structure, plenty of people who vote Democrat are like, fuck this system. I would go down and I would throw down against it. Many of them have. They vote for Democrats out of the compulsion that they're better than Republicans. But they are not organized. They do not have that kind of uh, relationship to the security institutions of America. And so they have no, they conceive of a rupture as confronting state power. And that's terrifying. And that means, and and it's uh, exacerbated by the fact that the higher you are within this structure, as in you're not voting for Democrats, you are a Democrat, or you demographically are among the group of Democrats who actually determine who gets to run for Democratic offices, you have absolutely no desire to see a rupture because you're still sitting in your fucking suburban home fat as a calf. Because your side won the culture war of the 60s which was a necessary victory because capitalism has to be in a global cap global capitalism must be cosmopolitan in culture. It it is necessary. And that's why a bunch of dipshits think that defending national reactionary social formations is some path to conflict with capital. But that is organized around this land-based capital that is essentially a residue of a feudal social order and is grounded in a way that your participation as just a voter or rooter for the right isn't. And which means that in a rupture, it will reassert itself using the technology of capitalism. It will not advance away from, uh, it will not advance from capitalism to uh, uh, socialism. It will regress to the sort of uh, of techno technologically uh, infused feudal land based regime of domination, because that is what's getting the backup of organized resistance on the right to capitalism. It is not exploitation through class; it is alienation from culture. Because no matter what the actual class position of someone who is uh, in, an, in a sense of personal identity, consider themselves a rightist. It is a belief in the hierarchy, the vestigial hierarchy of pre-capitalist social formations. And we are left with the task to infuse the relatively few decisions we get to make in a day with meaning and, and remove them from the realm of the automatic. That sucks because you can't talk about it. 
you can only really honestly you can only be poetic about it and and this is not a poetic age this is a place where if you want people to hear you if you want people to hear your voice it has to be uh it has to speak in like a a very concrete prose because we've robbed i mean it sounds kind it sounds you know uh cheesy to say but it is true we've robbed as we, like we, as we've robbed the public square of spirituality we rob it of poetry because we rob it of that if the the recognition that there is something unspeakable unobservable undescribable about experience we labor under these cultural uh, delusion that that is not the case and we're being driven insane in fact by that by by the inability to to communicate poet poetically we can only communicate literally which that's for machines that's for robots which capitalism is trying to turn us into so you got to put poetry into your life that sounds super fruity i know i'm sorry but it is true that's all i got over here and the way that i feel better about that is like yeah that sucks that's not very good but I'm one schmuck. I'm not. This is not my job. This is not my job. This is not any getting to aha is not any of our specific jobs. Our specific job is to be there for it, to be there for history as it occurs and stealing ourselves and, and directing our minds towards that goal and then playing a part that will be determined by uh time and space and chance in a way that cannot be anticipated and would be foolish to try to because if you anticipate it you are basically locking yourself into a uh, doomed relationship with it because guess what however you whatever you tell yourself it uh how it's going to go that's what your secret demonic little chipping voice wants it to be that is the motivated reasoning of someone who is locked in a libidinal relationship with spectacle i know i am because if you can sketch out something that you believe is going to happen and then act towards it, politically, I mean, like as, as an architecture, as, as like large events, not lives in your events in your life, talking the broad one saying, well, well, I can't think about what's going to happen in my life until I really get understand what's going to happen in the next five years globally, nationally. Nope. That that thing you're going to build out of that, that's that ship in a bottle. And it's uh, a ship. That is, you're designed to go. You're designed to go on to with the other uh, the other opium addicts. And I am, at the end of the day, a fucking optimist. Because, like, what what is the what is the what is the moral, political, teleological? What is what is the animating morality of socialism? It is the creation of uh, heaven on earth. Not heaven as, 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 as communion with God, which we cannot have, but heaven as we imagine it in a folk sense, as a place where people live through time, through perception, through sensation, but without alienation and of course like it is a cornerstone of liberal uh, 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 
understanding of the world, the one that they've been trying to drill into our heads for 150 years, is that that's impossible and that any politics that has that at its base uh, cannot be successful. It's going to kill everybody. If you think you're, But it, the reality is, is that anything that is not driven by that, anything that is, in fact, driven by the end stage capitalist concept of uh, man as essentially at war with itself can only be directing itself subconsciously towards annihilation. Like, congratulations, by avoiding utopian thinking, you have guaranteed a dystopian actual ending. And what would that look like, given our understanding of what humans are capable of? Look back at history and see what humans acting in concert can do in terms of extending their consciousness to each other, beyond one another, using technology. I mean, we've seen enough examples just in the actual history we've lived. We don't even have to fucking imagine and extrapolate into the future like the sci-fi folks have been doing for the last couple hundred years. Uh, You can just look at what we've done. Every element for a global Sweden, basically, you know, a place where maybe people do kill themselves because there's nothing, because it's kind of boring, but there's like a basic uh, 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 dignity to life and therefore resultant relatively low level of social pathology. Uh, just like, that is absolutely achievable given what we developed technology, technologically as a species over the last hundred years from uh, the not just. Uh, technology, not just high tech shit like the computer. Like obviously, we've conquered any computational problem with computing, but also just basic shit like the Green Revolution, allowing for like un, uh, never before understood or conceived possible population densities in the world. Transportation, energy. We've we've solved this shit. But instead, those pieces are being put together to make a fucking weapon of destruction that's going to kill everything because it was all built in the context of capitalist accumulation. And of course, capitalists want to look at all the advancements and say that was capitalism. It's like, no, all the doom. Now, of course, you might say global Sweden, that sounds boring and dickless and shitty. And and, uh, yeah, if you're like socially reactionary or you're even just like anti-woke, which, you know, uh, fair enough at this point. It's just if you're still caring about this stuff, at some point you're going to pick a side and just out of boredom. So I don't blame anybody who picks any side if they're, you know, I don't care. Uh, but of course, global Sweden would not look like Sweden. Global Sweden would not be capitalist because Sweden is capitalist at the end of the day. It's just one part of a capitalist machine that was able to negotiate a spatially and geographically fixed relationship with capitalism that was only sustainable there. Those conditions globally is not some uh, sad, some fucking Ingmar Berman movie with a bunch of people looking longingly into the distance. It's people working towards goals, all of them, that are socially and individually aligned. That's not the machinery of Orwell that he feared of. And that's because he saw the Soviet Union in the context of scarcity. It would be people moving towards their best use of their own will in accordance with their position.
And I think if you don't have that as a political uh, uh, horizon, then your politics are worthless. Because the only alternative to global Sweden is geohell. This point has been made for a very long time. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg most famously put it in so- Socialism or Barbarism. It's, it's banal and it's true. So you have to ask yourself, what is, what, how do you get there? And I think that for a lot of people who even on the right, who would say, those are my politics, global Sweden, white people everywhere having a good time. Again, it's about the process of building it. A society that makes global Sweden through genocide will be internally warped. Because guess what? It will not be in in creating socialism. It can't create socialism. It will not dethrone capitalism within itself. It will try to maintain this uh, surplus, this this Volk surplus diverted to the center by starving the every uh, periphery. Holy shit. What I'm saying social, when I say global Sweden, I mean global Swedish standard of living. I'm not talking about anything other than that. We're talking about Given the conditions that we have in this world, given this technology we have now, how could people live? Like as in access to things like healthcare and calories, rewarding work, safe, clean streets. That. That's all I mean. Oh, it's fascism. Yeah, sure. I'm saying it is this spatially and geographically fixed relationship to capitalism that of course is dissolving all those spatially fixed relationships that got built over the course of the truce between labor and capital in the post-war era they're all unraveling and they're creating these baronial revolts by local reactionaries because there's no social there's no uh, working class to resist anymore they've been defeated And I'm saying a a world with global Swedish standard of living does not have the social uh, problems of of uh, of of Sweden. It doesn't have no problems. It has personal problems. Everybody is it's it's who was it who said it's uh, socialism is converting hysterical misery into everyday unhappiness because we can all live with everyday unhappiness. We cannot live with hysterical misery. We drive ourselves to destruction to escape it. And the baronial revolt is a goddamn absolute dead end. Watching Peter Thiel say, "Like, oh, we're going to need to do, uh, we're going to need to do techno theocracy here to save uh, capitalism and save save freedom." Like, guess what? That's exactly the goal that the fucking globo homo agenda that you're trying to defeat is trying to do: is empower the algorithm formally. It's been in power for a while now, honestly. The same year that uh, trans- uh, that Terminator 2 was released is the year that uh, the algorithm became self-aware, 1991, fall of the Soviet Union. But, of course, it's hidden behind these inefficient screens of uh, democratic accountability that are undermining its ability to function. Because we have to all act like politics still exist, even though they don't. And so now we've got this gridlock 
where no crisis and the crisis are just going to keep piling up on top of each other. Look at fucking uh, good Lord. Corona's still running wild. And now we got monkeypox showing up. Of course, for the right, seeing these crises pile up and then become unaddressable, this can only be explained by secret cabals and great resets. It has to be intentional. Because things like the United States and capitalism and the Constitution are good and have good... are a strong, are a blueprint for stable and secure and upward advancing government, not a unstable uh, uh, truce that is constantly being undermined by changing economic conditions. And so they ah, it's a great reset. Well, oh, look, they're 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 making they're gonna when the global warming starts like swamping huge parts of the world, they'll be like, yes, they made this happen. They're trying to get rid of oh, they're cutting the power. Oh, they're cutting our food supply. It's like. No, the system can no longer sustain itself because of its piling internal contradictions that political paralysis have rendered unaddressable. And the only sense, but the only sense that the reactionary revolt against capitalism can make of that is as plans, as cabals. And any working class energy that joins the right will be organized around those principles because they don't have the ballots. They don't have the, 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 the cultural capital and real capital that would be based on to present an alternative theory. So yeah, like we're gonna just fall from the bottom into a pit which we can't speak of, and that pit is not. Here's the here's the most important thing. That pit is not the end of the world. That pit is not the real inferno. That pit is just beyond the pale of settlement, beyond the legible world that we who are in this hall of mirrors have arranged to make sense of our our world. It's just out of the picture. It's out of contention. It's out of the political subjectivity that uh, we are all uh, related to one another within. And then those who aren't falling are going to be moving to one of two spatially fixed capital accumulations that are going to have the same robot security guards and uh, and psychotically armed police and, and uh, physically removed uh, uh, elite, but different political rituals around that and different uh, stigmatized groups to be ritually punished for the misery everyone feels, but can only be directed in its blame outward because uh, we've lost the, the voice. We've lost the voice of the human race, which is supposed to be the, uh, the self-conscious working class speaking together. Now it's just a cacophony of people who consider themselves, first and foremost, as consumers. Not their fault, not their choice. This is why I have to reject, at the end of the day, conspiracy fixation, because it is a search, even from the left, 
for someone to blame and punish. And that is surrendering our political horizon and saying we're not going to imagine anything better anytime in the future. We're going to imagine uh, we're going to imagine payback for what's going to happen anyway. Uh, and I think any of that energy that goes out in the world is going to get used by capital. It's not going to be because uh, violence, I'm not talking violence, violence on behalf of a, a nascent and growing connecting uh, working class movement. That's, that's the purest sort of sacrifice. I mean, my God, you're talking John Brown stuff there, but you know, that the time for that is obviously not now because where, where is the working class structures to direct it? They don't exist. They will be made by the future and we'll all have to uh, be there for it. But anything that wants to find someone to blame now is just going to be playing into the hands of a capital that will take that energy in any direction it wants. Uh, but anyway, to get back to why I'm an optimist. So the thing I described, right, the utopian horizon where you have people working technologically together towards full consciousness, full species consciousness. Well, by, I mean, just logically, the same way that Christians say that, you know, God has to exist because we can imagine him. That has to have happened somewhere because we can imagine. Because when we're talking about human history and not human as like a species but human as consciousness, as conscious life, which humanity is part of, but only one strand of a much denser connection of, of, uh, of states and manners of consciousness, uh, then that, that, that history is also unbound by time. The number of chances, the number of Conditions that emerge are basically limitless, which means that the number of outcomes is essentially unbound. And that's one of those outcomes. And since that's going to happen somewhere someday, then any act we make towards its goal will make us feel good. See, I'm basically doing a humanist version of Rocco's Bacillus here, because those guys are, of course, the people who have extinguished any notion of the sacred, any notion of the un. The un uh, the unquantifiable truth and have re re resurrected that in, without even knowing it in the form of this, this algorithm that they worship because they imagine that it is uh, outside of them, but really it's just a container for their, their selfishness. And they're like, oh yeah, that machine got built somewhere and if you're not helping it get built, it's going to punish you. Well, what? Look at there. The goal, what's making you act? Fear of punishment. You're just resurrecting the, 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 the angry god of Protestantism that drove capitalism to destroy the world in the first place. And what a shock. This is it at its end stage when you've got to the point where smart people really can't take religion seriously. If they want to be in another room with a bunch of other smart people, people who understand computers and such. Because we're all, we all know that sky fairy stuff is nonsense, but future uh, uh, omnipotent Time-traveling AI? Well, that's certainly something we can consider. You've just made God again, dude, but you've made it in... Uh, you've made it not as a repository of, of connectedness. 
uh, and the love that that rep- that is rep- that uh, that connectedness is represented by in our experience, but rather our reptilian loathing of one another, our fear. So our, we can only act because the machine is compelling us to act, not because we want to. Want in the deepest centered sense, not of wanting to uh, satisfy uh, our neuroses and our uh, pathological relationship to the things around us in, in a way that distracts us from our deepest feelings, but one that makes a resonance throughout our entire being. And we all know, we can't, once again, this is a thing where we know what this is, but we cannot really describe it to each other because it is an individual experience. But we all know that feeling. The reason everyone is going crazy is because we live in a society where we are basically forbidden from doing things like that most of the time. And I know I did say we live in a society, but it's true. We really do. The Joker was onto something there. And we live in one where to advance the self, which we rationally understand is what we should be doing, we have to abjure things that make us feel that way. And so we have to build an angry, punishing God to compel us to act one way, allowing us to indulge ourselves in other ways. So we have to just find things that make us feel that way and then build around them lives that can accommodate them and they can connect them to other people who can feel the same thing. Because People getting together who feel the same pull towards acting together are beyond compulsion. This is one of the big, but what's that? But the thing that gets us to that point, it has to be a combination of our values, our abstract values, but also our necessity, like what we have to do to survive. There has to be a moment when we can bring those together. And one of the real problems of the contemporary left and what prevents it from being a left in a meaningful sense is that by definition, it is largely volunteer. And a voluntary left is one that will skew disproportionately towards the people who understand their experience of capitalism as one of guilt and, and uh, accountability and a, a desire to, uh, to have that expunged. And that means that their engagement with politics will tend towards, in large enough samples, to be indulgent. Not that there won't be a desire to do good things there and people who want to do good things there, but they will always be swimming against that current. And this is why the labor movement is always and only and forever the last best hope of humanity, because it is made up of people who are in it to win it, personally, for their families, for the people that they love, in the near term, say, like, conditions around them, and then meeting with others who can give voice to an understanding of the world that can make sense of their position. And then act collectively. Now, like, the Bolshevik Party, of course, was made up the reason that the Bolshevik Party will forever be the model is because of one, and it won in part because it was actually both of these things. 
You had a bunch of uh, uh, fancy boy emigres, largely. Not not all of them. Some of them came from the working class, like Bukharin. But uh, or no, I'm sorry, Bukharin was just like Lenin. He was a schoolmaster's kid. There were a couple of uh, working class kids, uh, but they mostly stay. They were people who came out of the labor movement, the trade union movement in Russia. Then you have a bunch of emigres who get to sit around in coffee shops and think about theory all the time. And so when they come together in 1917, it is as this machine that clicks into place. People who are on the ground and did the organizing from the bottom up out of necessity because they weren't getting any fucking food to eat. And the people who were doing it to expurgate uh, uh, guilt and to enact like a, uh, a life of, uh, of a will to power that all modern subjects do have to some degree or another. And they went to war together and they overthrew the czar. But in the process of winning the war, the working class half of it was essentially destroyed because they were the guys who fought the war. But they mostly got, a lot of them got shot. And, and uh, that politically active, uh, connected, conscious working class was replaced in the cities by a new generation of displaced peasants whose relationship to the Bolshevik party and the Soviet state became more akin to their relationship between the up-jumped and, and dip, uprooted peasants who uh, made up the post-Vita British Russian working class, ruling, yeah, w- Russian working class, and the old Tsarist regime. And all you have is this new bureaucracy on top. Which ended up carrying out not the agenda of like the Russian people, and not the agenda, really, of the working classes in like their best, their felt interests, but rather modernization of Russia, the creation of a competitive capital formation, a technologically advanced state capable of going toe to toe with the other technologically advanced capitalist states, but not using capitalism because their faith basically prevented them from making it capitalism. And because at the, at, the, at the tail end of the, of the stick, once you get out of Europe, out of Western Europe and the United States, and you get to larger, older social formations, and you have advanced capitalism engaging with them, it's not, they don't get to uh, build, so, they, they don't get to build capitalism the way those countries did. They have it imposed on them the way it's imposed on colonial subjects. And that means stagnation at the bottom. That means domination by foreign powers, which nobody, whether they're a putative Marxist who wants to, you know, save Russia and build Russia so that it can advance the cause of the global working class, or just a a great Russian nationalist who doesn't really have a vocabulary of class consciousness. You can align on that goal, and that is the goal that Stalin aligned around. And he did the same thing that the up-jumped, active bourgeois did in every country. And of course, it's very fitting that Stalin himself was, sorry, was neither a worker nor one of the bourgeois exiles. He was a fucking lumpen proletarian criminal. He was a guy whose dad was an alcoholic shoemaker who got his ass beat every day, lived on the street, was hung out at a... uh, at a monastery or a seminary to get some, uh, you know, free, free meals and then became a street criminal in his teens and also a poet. 
meaning that he is not subject to the same specific intellectual and spiritual uh, uh, narcissisms as the other old Bolsheviks. He is able to see clearly in a way that they aren't what needs to be done. You got Trotsky as the or the smartest of all of them, of course, but also the one absent Lenin's will to power. Lenin's brain blows up because he can't handle the contradictions, basically. Uh, but Trotsky is left here in a position where he wants to build socialism in Russia as a way of advancing global cap, uh, the war against cap, global capitalism to, to be the, the real prophet, you know, to embody that prophetic role. But he doesn't also he also doesn't want to kill a million peasants to do it. He doesn't want to build a machinery of exploitation the likes that the capitalists did. He understands that that's not what socialism is supposed to do. Communists are supposed to build out of the wreckage created by that process. They're not supposed, at, with the machinery and the capital that had been built up, they're not supposed to uh, exercise it themselves. But he still wants to do it, so he's left paralyzed and basically begs somebody to take power from him. Trotsky, again and again, is given an opportunity to advance himself in a way that would have allowed him to meaningfully confront Stalin for power. And at every point, he steps back. He says, no, that would be wrong, because he doesn't really want power, because he, does, he shrinks away from the responsibility of doing what, deep down, he knows needs to be done. Then you've got Bukharin and the right, who I think di- had the best diagnosis of the situation, I think, were, were the Bukharinites, and that they said, oh, social, social revolution is not coming worldwide, which means we're not getting rescued by the Germans, but also... Uh, if we try to build a industrial state that can compete with the West meaningfully, it will be at the cost of going to war with our own peasantry, which that's not in the caps of the socialism playbook. And he was right about that. But what Bukharin imagined instead was a system where Essentially, he essentially wanted to do perestroika uh, uh, seven years earlier. He wanted to do uh, he wanted to extend NEP and and build build a uh, market relationship with the peasantry to uh, use capitalism to get them to advance uh, their agricultural production the way that they did in the West and the problem there is that. That might be theoretically possible, but a cold, clear look at the conditions the Soviet Union faced in that period will tell you that the West would not have uh, stood for that, that the introduction of capitalism would have meant the breaking up and the severing of the Soviet Union, the overthrow of Bolshevism, and probably the end of Russia. Now, maybe you get a, you get enough drinks in Bukharin, he might be okay with that because What's Russia? It's the working class. Like, I understand this, something we have to work with because it's a historical reality, but it's not real in a way that I should emotionally connect myself to. Guys like Stalin actually thought Russia was the whole thing. So they, so, so Stalin is able to embody this knowledge that none of the other factions can accept and then he neutralizes them all in time. He, he uses, he, he, he allies with Bukharin to neutralize Zinoviev and Kamenev, and then turns right around and uh, neutralizes Bukharin and carries out what, what uh, Kamenev and, and Zinoviev and Trotsky for a while were all demanding 
But here's the thing. None of them would have been able to go through with it. And if they can't go through with it, what happens to the Soviet Union? And that's because Stalin had a, did not have a, a utopian horizon to his politics at the end of the day. There's a, there are uh, notes in Stalin's uh, archive where he's got like volumes of Engels and like Engels is talking about you know, the reality, like how, uh, how socialism would extinguish, you know, uh, hierarchies and it would extinguish monetary economy and, and stuff like that. And he would just write ha 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 next to it. He believed that it's war man against man, man is wolf to man. All right, so that's this week. Uh, I am going to do, I've decided I'm going to do Richard Lachman, RIP's book, uh, First Class uh, Passengers on a Sinking Ship for the next book, but not maybe for a couple weeks, because I said I might get Sam Grandin on the show to talk about making of global capitalism, but uh, might do another uh, Q&A app maybe later this week before we get to there, so... Stay tuned. Keep it sleazy. Bye-bye.